Uh, as Josh said, my name is Davey Walker. I'm uh, the associate pastor here, uh, and it's always a privilege uh, to get to spend Sunday mornings with you guys um, and open the Lord's words uh, and read them and, and expound upon them. Uh, when Josh asked me a while ago to, to speak uh, this week, I, I said, sure, you know, I always love to, to preach. Um, I hadn't looked at the text yet. And then Josh decides to go to Disneyland this week. And so while Josh is in Disneyland, I'm studying on divorce, circumcision, and slavery. It's like, wow, thank you for leaving me. Awesome. Uh, we have an awesome message today, though. Um, and I want to start by asking this question. Have you ever found yourself in a situation and you're thinking, man, I really don't want to be here right now. Or even, I, I, I don't know why I'm here. Or I, I really need to get out of this situation. Only to realize over time that that situation was exactly where you were supposed to be. That that was actually a situation that was going to grow you in huge ways. A situation that God was going to use to make you into the person you are today. A few years ago, uh, this crazy husband uh, did, decided to bring his all-too-loving and supportive wife on this journey to be house parents at a fraternity, to step into a community of 60-some guys where we say, hey, I'm mom, I'm dad. Uh, that's what Ann and I did two years ago. Uh, we stepped into to SIGAP and said, hey, we want to be house parents here. And within the first few days of being there, Anna comes up to me and she says, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can last a year here. I don't even know if I can last a whole quarter here, 10 weeks. You see, the carpet smelled like dog. Like even after it was deep cleaned, smelled like dog. And so every day you'd wake up, walk out, and just whiffs of wet dog. And luckily, we talked to the landlord and got our carpet replaced. But even then, as the man is replacing our carpet, he brings his dog with him. <laughs> so his dog's just roaming the carpet. You see, Anna began to have to sleep with earplugs because the noise was constant. Whether that be guys jumping off of the bunks in the floor right above us, guys peeing right outside our window in the middle of the night, or the TV on in the living room, which I'm pretty sure did not turn off the whole two years we lived in that house. And the sound just went right through our paper-thin walls. To make matters worse, we didn't have a dishwasher, and our sink was about the size of a bathroom sink. So you kind of had to awkwardly position your plates to clean them. Our bathroom was freezing cold. We had to have a little heater going in that bathroom 24-7 just to keep it manageable. And to make matters even worse, or maybe comical, depending on how you look at it, you never know when a guy from the fraternity might walk into your house just in his underwear. True story happened to Anna. <laughs> and so Anna spent many nights asking, pleading, you know, why am I here? I don't know if I can do this. And me being the husband, I spent many nights wondering, did I make the wrong decision? Was I an overzealous husband who was like, this sounds like an awesome opportunity, let's do it. 
Yet as time went on, we began to see the positives in our situation. We began to build relationships with guys in that house. Our house became a safe place for them to come into and to talk life, for some of them to talk faith, to ask questions, to be prayed for. We got to welcome them into our tiny home to, to cook meals together. And so often they'd come in and write their birthday on the calendar just hoping Anna would bring them some awesome treats that day. Again, we had, we had awesome opportunities to have spiritual conversations with guys in that house. By God's grace, I got to have a Bible study with guys from that house the two years that I was there. We got to pray with non-believers. And even to this day, I'm seeing and hearing of more guys in that house growing up to love the Lord. More guys coming in the house that have a faith and are wanting to pursue God in community. And each Sunday, there's a large group of guys that come together to a church in town to worship God. And small groups are starting to form within the house. You see, we went from questioning our situation to praising God for it. And trust me, there were still some really hard times in the midst of those two years, in the midst of even praising God for the cool things that are happening. But the reality is seeing God at work far outweighed the kind of negative experiences that we had. And in today's text, Paul flushes out this reality. He shows us that God doesn't make mistakes. Therefore, you can remain as you are, for you can serve Christ in whatever situation you find yourself. And he starts to unpack that in kind of three different avenues we're going to look at. And one is in the marriage relationship in verses 10 through 16. The next is in our social settings which is going to be verses 17 through 20, and then lastly in our vocation, which is 21 through 24. So in our marriage relationships, it's important, I think, prior to unpacking Paul's comments on marriage and divorce, uh, that we discuss kind of our current state of marriage in our culture. Because the reality is for many of us, this touches home. This can be a hard and awkward conversation. For many of us, we come from families where it is a broken household, where our parents are divorced. For others, we ourselves maybe have been divorced or are currently divorced. And if you don't fit in that category, I guarantee you know of people that are divorced, have been divorced, been brought up in a broken home. I feel like Anna and I talk every week or two about another couple around our age that are going through a separation or a divorce. We live in a culture that doesn't treat marriage as sacred, but rather as a commodity to enjoy until we no longer do, until we get tired of the other person. The vow until death do us part no longer takes precedent in our society. The American Psychological Association states that 40 to 50% of marriages in the United States end in divorce, and that number just continues to increase for those that get remarried. And we know that this issue sadly does not stop at the doors to the church. Those studies show that Christians active in their faith are less likely to get divorced. We know that that number is still too high than what we want to see. In reality, we're pretty quick to get divorced. And please hear me clearly. I'm not saying that there's never a legitimate reason to pursue divorce. 
but rather that we as a culture, and this has seeped into the church, we are too quick to seek divorce. And this rubs against the Bible's teaching on divorce. We know that from the beginning in Genesis, God created man and woman, and he proclaimed that the two shall become one, shall become unified. Therefore, what God put together, let no man separate. The Bible is very anti-divorce. But even as we see in God's, I mean, in Paul's words today, in God's word, that he does give us options. As we begin to unpack this section on the marriage relationship, Paul lays out different ideals for the situation. He gives ideal situation for the believing couple, where both of them are believers, and then for the mixed couple, where one is a believer and one is not. And so each ideal is followed up by an exception. And again, these exceptions are not areas Paul encourages us to pursue in our relationship, but rather realities that exist within their culture, within our culture. And lastly, you spend time emphasizing why these marriage relationships are so important. We're going to read verses 10 through 16 as Paul speaks on marriage. He says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she should not divorce, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is, a, who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So to the Christian couple, those first two verses, verse 10 and 11. Paul begins his charge to, to the Christian couple with kind of a weird statement. Um, a statement that I never really understood growing up. I would read it and I'm like, okay, that's confusing and moves on. Where he says, not I, but the Lord. What does that mean? What does that statement mean? He's, he's, he's speaking and says, hey, this isn't me speaking. This is the Lord. Paul here is ultimately not appealing to his apostolic authority or the authority that he's been given as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But rather he's saying, hey, I'm pointing back to the traditions and teachings of Jesus and what he had to say on marriage. So ultimately, as, as Paul writes this, he's, he's saying, hey, remember back to what Jesus said. Remember to what he said marriage was about as we continue forward. And then Paul lays out the ideal for a Christian marriage. He says, wives, don't separate from your husbands, and husbands, don't divorce your wives. And we can think of this separate and divorce as synonymous terms. Because in reality, when, when in the Greco-Roman world, divorce, you could go through a legal process and do paperwork and all that, but a lot of times people just simply separated from their spouse and it really served the same purpose. And so when he's saying that, he's saying, hey, don't divorce. Whether you're the husband or the wife, stay together. So the ideal, do not divorce one another. But Paul, 
seeing that this is not always going to be followed, he gives an exception. So he says, hey, if, if, if he or she, if your wife or your husband does divorce, then there's two options for how they go about their life. One, he says, do not remarry. Or two, reconcile yourself to your spouse. Why does Paul say these two things? It ultimately goes back to that initial statement where he says, not I, but the Lord. Because he's ultimately saying, hey, I'm pointing back to what Jesus said about marriage and the sanctity that Jesus had for marriage. It's ultimately because Paul has a high biblical view of what marriage actually is, what it represents. Paul's charge flows from the teachings of Jesus in Mark 10, 11, where he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. He's ultimately urging us to stay together, to fight for the sanctity of our marriage, of our spouse, of that relationship, to not defile one another in the process. But then he goes on and says, but, but if the desire to remarry is there, he ultimately points you back to, to reconciling yourself to your spouse. And once again, this call for reconciliation is rooted deeply into the gospel message. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. You see, he's saying, hey, through reconciling yourself to your spouse, you get to be a model of the gospel to this broken and hurt world. So in summary, Paul's urge and calling to the married couple, the Christian married couple, is stay as you are. Don't pursue divorce. Fight for the unity of that relationship. And then he moves on and he says, hey, for all those other people, pretty much if you don't fit into that category and you're part of the church in Corinth, then one of you, husband or wife, is going to have a relationship with Jesus. And the reality is your spouse will not. And he kind of takes the opposite, the flip of that weird statement we looked at in verse 10, where now he says, I, not the Lord. And I know growing up when I would read this, I would think, oh, well, that's, is he saying like, oh, God isn't saying this. Like, that's not what God thinks. This is what I think. But no, rather what he's saying is the Lord hasn't, Jesus hasn't spoken specifically on this topic before because the reality is that while Jesus was on earth, this wasn't a common reality. And so now he's speaking in the context of saying, hey, I'm speaking with apostolic authority. I'm speaking by God's authority through the spirit of the Lord. These are the words that I speak on behalf of God. And he's saying, for the mixed marriage, here is the ideal. Stay married to your unbelieving spouse. Do not seek divorce, but remain as you are. And he's saying that because for the, for the Corinthians, they're really wondering, well, if I stay with my spouse, like, is that going to somehow tarnish my relationship with God? Is that going to somehow ruin my relationship with God or my relationship with people in the church? And so I should just, I should just flee. I should just get rid of that person. But Paul says, hey, don't do that. 
The only exception he actually gives, he says, if your unbelieving spouse wants to divorce you, then let it be so. Allow that to happen. And he follows up the ideal with this less than ideal exception of saying, hey, if they want to divorce you, let it go. But he gives us reasons why. Why to allow this to happen, but also why to fight for our marriage. He says we are to stay married to our unbelieving spouse. One, because they are made holy. And two, that if they divorce us, we want that to happen because, or we allow that to happen because God's called us to peace. And that we might actually get to play a role in this person's salvific story. So let's unpack this made holy. The verbiage of, of made holy, honestly, is something that's been debated for a really long time and continues to be debated today. A lot of different commentaries have very different views on what this means. Um, and so it's hard to unpack all of it. And though we don't know every element of the meaning, there are a few things that we can be confident in that Paul is saying. Two things. The first, it's really what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that the believing spouse's holiness somehow rubs off on the other spouse to bring them into salvation. It is not that my holiness makes my wife saved. This speaks against the words of Jesus and even the words of Paul. For Jesus in John 3.36, I mean says, whoever, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. He doesn't say whoever's spouse believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever believes. And then Paul, in his letter to the Romans, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's, there's a personal element to this. So we know that Paul's not saying, hey, your holiness makes your spouse have a relationship with God. And two, we know that you don't need to get divorced because you think your unbelieving spouse will negatively affect your, affect your relationship with God. But rather, he takes the reverse of that and says, no, stay married because your relationship to God, your holiness has a positive effect on your spouse. Not a salvific effect, but a positive effect on your spouse. He's saying if you come to know Jesus and your spouse does not, his or her unbelief does not tarnish your status. Calvin comments on this verse and he says, The godliness of the one does more to sanctify the marriage than the ungodliness of the other to make it unclean. Rather, a Christian's holiness as seen through one's lifestyle, their values, their influence, as a Christian spouse, and as a Christian parent, has a wholesome and positive effect on that non-believing party, on that non-believing spouse, and on your kids. So he says, stay in that marriage, because you have a positive influence that could maybe, could maybe actually lead to salvation because we see where he gets to at the end of this section he says for how do you know whether you will save your spouse husband and wife how do you know and again this has been viewed from both an optimistic where you have a, the potential or pessimistic where like how do you know it's you, it's not going to happen so is paul saying that you can or cannot play a role in one's salvation based on my reading and understanding of the text the, the the positive side the 
seems, the optimistic side seems the most prominent. That he's saying, hey, you might actually play a role in your unbelieving spouse's salvific journey, salvific story, coming to know Jesus. And so fight for that. Fight for that. And he says, do it in the peace of the Lord. So ultimately for the believing couple and the the mixed couple, he's saying, fight for the sanctity of your marriage. Stay as you are. Because God can use you in the midst of both of these circumstances for his glory and for really the sanctity and holiness of that other person. So what does this mean for us today? If you're single, if you're married, if you're remarried, Paul's ultimately calling us to the same thing. He's saying align your view of marriage to that of Christ. You need to have a high and biblical view of marriage. A high and biblical view of marriage just has Christ preached throughout the Gospels, and Paul even continues that preaching throughout his letters. He's saying if you were married, this is the reality we are to embrace with our spouse. And if you're single, this is the reality we are to pursue as we pursue our potential spouse. We need to have a selfless view of marriage. Marriage isn't just about me. Marriage isn't just about my spouse, but it's the two becoming one. Because as it becomes about me, it actually becomes about that person as we are united. This is a holy and sacred event. That's why it's a covenantal relationship. We make a covenant before one another and before our people. In Ephesians 5, we are called to live out the sacrificial love of Christ in our marriages. Paul says, Christ loves the church, which is his bride, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present her in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We play a part in the sanctity of the other person, in the sanctity of our spouse. We are to care for the soul of our spouse. We are to push our spouse towards holiness. And practically, that means we need to be people that pray together. Pray with your spouse. Maybe if your spouse doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, pray for them to come to know Jesus day in and day out. Read scripture together. Actually talk about your relationship with Jesus. I think it's shocking how many couples we can both have relationships with Jesus, but don't actually invite each other into that aspect of our life. Yet if Jesus is the most important thing to us, that should be what actually brings us together, what unifies us, and conversation should be rooted around what God is doing in my life, what God is doing in our lives together. And lastly, we need to be people who pursue reconciliation. Pursue reconciliation just as Christ reconciled himself to us. It's not a fun reality to think through, but it's important. Think through how many times Jesus would have or could have left us based on the decisions we've made throughout our life. Yet, time and time again, 
because of through the cross, Jesus says, I'm still here. I'm still present. I still love you. He is in the business of reconciliation. So let us be people who selflessly pursue the sanctity of marriage, keeping Christ truly at the center, not just in word, but in action and deed, and continually reconcile ourselves to one another. And then, and then Paul begins to transition in verses 17 through 24. And if you read all of chapter 7 in its totality, you probably are really confused why verses 17 through 24 are actually in this chapter. Because as Josh spoke on last week and I began our time together this week, it's all about marriage and widows and divorce and trying to wrestle with these relationships. And then he ends the passage speaking again, once again, to widows, but also to those that are single. It's all about this marriage relationship or lack thereof. And then in the middle of this, Paul's like, hey, I'm going to pause and let's talk about circumcision and slavery. It seems really out of place. And my first time reading it and many times after that, I was super confused. Why is this in this chapter? Why doesn't Paul put this somewhere else? Yet as we dig in and as we see, Paul's ultimately using this section of chapter 7 to magnify the large point he's trying to make throughout this entire section. And again, that is that God doesn't make mistakes with where you're at. Therefore, you can actually remain where you are. For you can serve Christ in whatever situation you find yourself. And he's like, we're going to apply this section and then look back to that applies to your marriage relationship. And look forward to that applies to your singleness. And so he uses this section to, to really ramp that up and to show how does this apply to our life. And in verses 17 through 20, God calls us to embrace this reality when it comes to our social settings. Let's read verses 17 through 20. And he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anybody at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to, to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Nor neither, for neither the circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he is called. In regards to verse 17, Gordon Fee, who has an awesome commentary on 1 Corinthians, he says, Paul is not saying that by God calling someone, I mean, Paul is saying that by God calling someone in a given situation, that situation is taken up in the call and thus sanctified. Similarly, by saving a person in that setting, Christ thereby assigned it to them as their place of living out life in Christ. So what Gordon's saying and ultimately what Paul is saying is that God has called you to a specific part of your life. It's not like God just showed up randomly one day and was like, oh, okay, let's have a relationship. But he's been following your story since the beginning. He's been molding your story since the beginning. And so what Paul is saying is when you step into a relationship with Jesus, he knows where you're at in life. 
And so therefore, he's called you into that relationship with him in the midst of where you're at in life. He's saying, make use of the place God has called you, that God has assigned you, and he will make use of you in that place. And I love this section because Paul says, this is my rule for all the churches, which speaks to us today. This isn't just in the context of, hey, just for the Corinthians 2,000 years ago, this is a call to you. But he's saying, for all my churches, which continue today, which continue with the branch church in Corvallis. The call that he gave to them 2,000 years ago, he gives to us today. And then Paul uses the illustration of circumcision to continually drive home this point. As we look at this illustration, he's saying, hey, circumcision doesn't matter to God. If you were circumcised, don't try to change and become uncircumcised, which that's just a really odd thought process in and of itself. But looking at commentaries in reality, guys actually tried to do that process in the Greco-Roman world. I can only imagine what that looked like. He says, if you are not circumcised, don't try to become circumcised. Ultimately, he's saying, hey, if you were converted as a Gentile, stay a Gentile. And if you were converted as a Jew, stay a Jew. He's like, I saved you in that specific part of your life as who you were for a specific reason. Don't try to be somebody you're not, but actually embrace who you are. He's saying, hey, this this circumcision doesn't actually count for anything. It's not like you get brownie points for doing this. Circumcision doesn't change your status in the eyes of God. These distinctions are irrelevant. And Paul doesn't just make that claim here, but it flows throughout his letters. We see this same idea brought up in the, book, in, uh, the letter to the Galatians, where this is, this is a topic, a really hot topic for them, because they actually have Jews saying, hey, to actually step into a relationship with Jesus, you have to be circumcised. And yet Paul rebuttals that in in chapter 5, verse 6 of Galatians. says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then before that, in chapter 3, a verse that I'm sure many of us know, says there is neither a Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. No longer. Is circumcision the thing that sets you apart as the people of God? But rather, it's your relationship with God through Christ that makes you who you are, that makes you set apart. These changes aren't important to God. And obviously, Paul Paul is not saying that to have a relationship with Jesus, you don't need to change any aspect of your life. But rather, he's, he's looking at the motivation behind the changes that these people are pursuing. Because ultimately, the person that wants to get circumcised is like, oh, I'm not good enough here, so I need a change to make myself look good, even though the physical action of circumcision doesn't actually make you more holy. It just gives you the facade of that. And for the, for the other side, some people are like, oh, well, I don't actually fit in in the Greco-Roman world being circumcised, so if I can hide that, then I'll better be able to fit in to the people around me. He's addressing the social distinctions that the Corinthians are pursuing and their motivation for their pursuit. 
See, he places the importance of one's life not in these social distinctions that potentially separate one from the other, but rather in the call to keep the commands of God. Keep the commands of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the precedent, not the social distinctions representing holiness. One's obedience to God's command is more important than any cultural distinctive we can think of. The mere changing of distinctions don't hold their importance. And so, so what does this mean for us? Because I'm pretty positive none of us, specifically men, have thought about either becoming circumcised or trying to not become circumcised so that we can have some kind of social distinction or we can somehow be holy because of that. Rather, he's getting at, you don't have to be something that, you don't have to become something that you're not for the sake of Christ. In this context, you don't have to be Jew or Greek to follow Jesus, to be holy. Rather, follow the commands of God. And I think this is, this is a reality that was given 2,000 years ago that we still struggle with today, of wanting to change different aspects of our life for the, for the sake of holiness, when it might not actually be for the sake of holiness, but just to have this social distinction to look better within one's culture. And so we can kind of flush this out in, in two, two applications, two things to think through. And number one, this is a call to be comfortable in your own skin, in their context, with or without foreskin. Jesus calls us to himself. And he knew who we were and where we were when he called us. He did not make a mistake when he called us and where he called us. So therefore, embrace the life that Christ has called you to. Embrace where you are in life. If you're in the Greek system at Oregon State, stay in the Greek system. And use that influence you have for the glory of God. If the majority of your friends don't know Jesus, don't flee from your friends to try to find this Christian community. Christian community is important, but also realize that God has placed you in that community for a specific reason, for his glory. Or as you go to your workplace, don't hide your face because God has you there for a reason. He says, I know why you work at HP. I know why you're a barista. Or I know why you're a student. I have a specific reason for you being there. Embrace that call. And don't play the comparison game. I think it's so easy to just, we can't imagine living in a situation in which we don't enjoy, in which we're not comfortable. And so we're just constantly comparing ourselves. If only I was like that person. I want to be that person. Or I wish I was better. I wish I looked more like that person. I wish I knew more like that person. Which is so easy in our culture to do. I mean, just look at social media. I think in our culture, it's like, oh, I want to have that Subaru. And I want to wear the Patagonia fleece. And I want to have Allbirds. And I want to be able to shop at Market of Choice. Like, we live out these realities. And we're like, oh, once I get there, then I'll be good. But the reality is, if you get there, there's something else you want. The comparison game never ends. It doesn't bring life. And rather, you're saying, hey, instead of comparing yourself, look at where you are and use that. Use that opportunity. Be comfortable in your own skin. And then the second thing. We need to check 
our motivations for the change that we are pursuing. Because again, Paul's not mandating a rule that you can never change your life. But rather, he's saying one social status isn't actually important. God doesn't say, hey, I love you more because you have a PhD versus, oh, you only have, oh, you don't even have a high school diploma? Sorry, you don't make the cut. That's not how God works. He says, I can use you with a PhD or with no high school diploma. He's challenging us to look at our motivation for the desires we have, especially when it comes to the social distinctions we try to place upon our life. And Paul's saying, hey, when it comes to our motivations, are they out of a selfish reason, a self-fulfillment reason? Or do they actually have to do with keeping the commands of God? So that's the question. Do, do we have good motivations? What are our motivations? Why do we desire change? If that desire truly is rooted in, hey, I want to keep the commands of God and where I'm at in life or my experiences don't allow me to do that or I feel like I'm falling in that way. And I think all the more Peter's saying, hey, make those, make those changes because following the commands of God is far more important than where you are at socially on some ladder that doesn't actually exist. But at the same time, if you begin to ask that question, and really your motivation for change in one's life has nothing to do with following the commands of God more holy, then we have to ask the question, why? What are my motivations? And the beautiful thing is that we're entering a week of prayer and fasting tomorrow. And I think this is a great opportunity for us to actually wrestle with that question. I think always in somebody's life, we're thinking through some aspect of change. And so I encourage you this week to spend time praying and fasting, whatever that may look like, with this question in mind. These changes I'm pursuing, are they of you, Lord, or are they of myself? Remember, God didn't make a mistake when he saved you. He saved you in that specific situation and context, and he wants to use you there. And then lastly, Paul moves into our vocation in verses 21 through 24. And it reads, we were a bond, when you, were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For, we, for he who was called in the Lord as a bond servant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bond servant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bond servants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let them, let there, let him remain with God. In our vocation. I think it's important for some of us, the word is bond servant. And for others, that word says slave. It's important for us to realize that the term Paul uses, whether bond servant or slave, is very different in context than what we in America typically think of the term slave. Paul, has, Paul is saying nothing to do with the American slave trade and the atrocity that happened within our country. American slavery versus Greco-Roman slavery were two very, very different things. As a Greco-Roman slave, you were fed, housed, you actually were able to get some kind of money because he's saying, hey, you can actually buy your freedom. Um, and, and all your provisions were taken care of. 
you received wages. You actually had a role in society. And, and the crazy reality is in the Greco-Roman world, the approximation is that about one-third of the whole population was a bondservant or was a slave. It was not viewed as this terrible thing. Yes, you were the bottom of the totem pole, but actually a lot of people pursued slavery because they knew all their needs were met, where in a lot of times, if you lived outside of that context, it was a rough world to get by in. So it's important for us to note, as he's speaking on bond servants, it's, it's not American slavery. It's something very, very different. But what's unique to this section is Paul actually engages with this conversation of the remain as you are that's kind of been flowing throughout. But he kind of, he, he changes it. And instead of saying remain as you are when it says a bond servant, he says, don't be concerned about it. Don't be concerned about it. One commentator acknowledges the significance and he says, this command is not stay as you are, but do not be concerned about it. The difference is, is there because the slave could not choose his or her status. That is, a person could sell oneself into slavery, but a person could not choose freedom. But Paul gives the exception. He says, hey, if you're able to get free, if you're able to purchase your freedom, by all means, do it. By all means, do it. So he's developing upon this idea of the remain as you are. And revealing that whatever situation Christ calls us to, he's saying, don't let it be of major concern to you. Because I can use you regardless of where you're at in life. And, and why does he say that? Practically, one's freedom is not essential for acceptable service to the Lord. You see, in slavery or as a bondservant, you have opportunities to serve the Lord in your everyday life. And as the freed person, you have opportunities to serve the Lord in everyday life. He's saying, hey, it doesn't actually matter, this distinction, because if you're working for me and serving me, I'm going to use you regardless of where you're at. And theologically, Paul lays out in verse 22 through 23 that through Christ's death, we've actually been bought with the price. Therefore, he says the bondservant is made free in Christ, and the person that is free actually, in a sense, becomes a bondservant to Christ. Paul says in other letters that we become slaves to righteousness. You see, the metaphor comes full circle. Though a bondservant still might be a bondservant socially, in Christ, he is both free and bondservant. Purchased by Christ. And free in him. And as we come under Christ's ownership, we actually experience more freedom than ever the freed man would experience on his own. Therefore, again, Paul's not saying you can't change. But it does mean God did not make a mistake with your background. God did not make a mistake with where you're at. Whether free or not, no matter your vocation, that's not the greatest concern to you. Because of who you are in Christ. The emphasis on one's life is the fact that we have been made free through Christ, through the cross. And then Paul ends for the third time in this section that whatever situation you're in, remain there. And then here he adds, remain with God. Remain with God. 
And, and as we leave, that's what we want to cling to. That's one, the reality to cling to. Remain with God. Because the reality is God always remains with us. We just have to actually realize that and embrace that. We need to see that God is present, that God is with you in the midst of your circumstances. It's not just God's with me in the good times and then flees in the bad, but he's there in the good and the bad. Remain with God, for he remains with us. How different would our lives look if we actually embrace that reality? That as we went to work every day, we said, hey, I'm with God today. I'm with God as I go into my cubicle, as I engage with my coworkers, as I perform surgery, as I make drinks. I'm with God today. Or our home environment. It could be that person that's worked coming home after a long day to engage with the kids or the mom that's been home all day. What if we live in that reality? Remain with God. He's present. He has you there for a reason. Embrace it. Or in our relationships, whether that be in a marriage relationship, a dating relationship, or just a friendship, what would it look like to live out that reality? Remain with God. The presence of God is the strength we need for every situation God puts us in. And so stay in that. Remain in that. And the second thing for us, we need to make the best use of our life circumstances. If we really believe that God doesn't make mistakes, then we can remain where we are. Because he's actually able to use that for his glory, for his namesake. Have you ever cried out, if only, if only my situation was different. If only I just owned a house or a bigger house, then I could be more hospitable. This is where it hits home for me, being 28 and being like, when I was an 18-year-old, I for sure thought I have a house by this point. And 10 years go by and I'm living in an apartment and being like, oh, I wish I had more. Or if only I just had a bigger paycheck, then I'd be more generous. If only I had more time then I would spend more time with Jesus. If only I lived with different people, then I would be a better Christian. Or if only I knew more about God, then I would actually tell people about him. You see, we're always playing the if only game in life instead of the reality of where I'm at and that God can use me here. And this carries over to our vocation as well. Do you feel like your job is just menial? God's saying, hey, don't be concerned about that. I'll use you in the menial. Is your job not as highly esteemed as other professions? Don't be concerned. I'll use you in that mix. Or maybe you're that college student that's like, oh, if I tell people my major, they're like, oh, that's so easy. Of course you would do that. God uses you in the easy majors and the hard majors. You see, the reality is God needs people that are the CEO of Fortune 500 companies, and God needs the janitors in those companies. Because if God is calling all people to himself, and so often we get to use our relationships with people to actually build and actually share Christ, then he wants the CEO and he wants the janitor, and he says, you all have a role to play in my story of glory and bringing the kingdom of God to earth. We get to live out that reality. We get to make the best use of our circumstances because 
our eternity, our eternal reality with God far outweighs any earthly reality we're currently in. Like, let that sink in. If I really have my view towards the future to see God is calling me to heaven, to paradise, and that's the reality I get to actually embrace, then in the grand scheme of things, who cares what job I have right now? Whether it be a great job or a bad job, the matter of the fact is that we want to use our job for God's glory because he's called us there for a reason. Embrace that. So ultimately, we see through this whole section that God did not make a mistake when he called you. Whether that be in regards to your marriage, your social setting, or your vocation. He called you into a specific location so that you might remain as you are and remain with God. And yet this might seem impossible for us. This might seem too hard. And yet there is one who went before us that lived this out fully. And the life he was called into was definitely more difficult than I think any of us can fathom or embrace ourselves. See, Jesus Christ wholeheartedly lived out the life that God called him to. Jesus, being fully God, took on human flesh and came to be a servant to all. Though the king of the world and the universe, he was born in a manger to grow up as a carpenter. He bore the pains, bruises, scars, and weakness of being human. He was blessed with adoration one moment and accused of being the son of the devil the next. One of his best friends betrayed him for some money. He willingly stood on trial, being charged with committing blasphemy while speaking very words of truth. He allowed the very people he came to save to mock and beat him and ultimately place him on a cross. He lived out the life God called him to for us, for you, and for me, because he loves us. For through him, we have been reconciled to God. And now God resides with us through his spirit. And it's that same spirit that remains with us today in the midst of our circumstances. Just as God did not make a mistake in calling his son to the life he lived, he didn't make a, make a mistake in our lives either. Therefore, may we be people who embrace our situation, knowing that we can fully serve Christ in whatever situation we find ourselves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, God, I praise you for your words. Lord, that regardless of where we are at in life, we can cling to the truth that you've called us there for a reason. We can embrace that truth and that reality. Lord, may we be men and women to live out that reality, that say, hey, through you, Lord, I have the strength and the ability to be intentional in my here and now for you. Lord, may we praise you that you don't make mistakes in our lives, but you've put us where we are for a specific purpose, for a specific time, for your glory. Now may we be people who pursue your glory. In your name, amen.